Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome into Soccer Morning here on Backheel.com. And if you happen to have missed Wednesday's episode, we were off yesterday. We're back today. If you missed Wednesday's episode, you missed the announcement. Soccer Morning has partnered with World Soccer Talk. That, old, uh, that, that partnership takes effect Monday. So if you're a live listener of the show, Monday is when you need to navigate to worldsoccertalk.com slash live in order to partake in the live program. If you are a podcast listener, nothing changes for you. If you're already subscribed, you get that thing delivered to your iTunes or whatever, you're fine. You don't need to change anything. We are very excited for the partnership with World Soccer Talk and to take us into the future. Big things happening here at Soccer Morning at Backheel.com, but, but it's Soccer Morning specifically for you guys who listen every single day. T- trust me, I appreciate you. I even appreciate the people out there who hate listening to this show. And I know there's more than a few of you. I know there's more than a few people who they don't like me, they don't like the subject matter, they wish I would talk more MLS, they wish I would talk more EPL, they wish I would talk more La Ligue, whatever it is. Whatever your beef is with the show. As long as you listen, I, I don't I don't really care. And you can call in to argue with me or take me down a peg or whatever it is that's in your head anytime you want. Well, after our guest. And we've got two excellent guests today on a Friday episode of the program. First up, Emmanuel Vett, who covers uh, Ukrainian soccer, Russian soccer, some Eastern European stuff. Obviously, a part of the world going through a lot at, the t- at, at this moment in time. We have to if you're not into the current actual news that that matters, there has been a discussion over a ceasefire in eastern Ukraine. And the question for us around here is how does that affect the football? So Manuel will join us in just a couple of minutes to discuss how that's affecting the football. We've had him on before. What's changed since then? You have a couple of teams maybe disappearing. Ukrainian Premier League whittling down to 14 teams for next season or this coming season. What schedule are they on? That We're going to have to talk to Manuel about that as well. But in a country with as much strife as Ukraine is going through, and in fact, a, a full-blown civil war aided by a major power, somehow the football is still happening, and that's a, that's a fascinating story. At 10.30, another fascinating story, closer to home, Will Parchman from Top Door Soccer will join us. I want to talk to him about what New York City FC is doing because he's got a piece over there at Top Door Soccer at the 91st minute that outlines exactly what NYCFC is doing in terms of their academy structure, and it's potentially groundbreaking. It's potentially huge, not only for New York area soccer and the development of the players, and you know that's a rich area for soccer, but for how this thing happens, how clubs do this thing in the United States of America specifically. Will's got some thoughts on that. We'll grab him. Maybe we'll talk about some other issues around uh, young players in the U.S. system as well. Because there's a couple of interesting things that have come out. Julian Green and whether or not he's been demoted to the U23 team on his loan. And Will Trapp with some comments about his time at U.S. Men's National League Team Camp with Jurgen Klinsmann. Those things will definitely be top of mind. While the phone line's open, tweets ready to go. Later on in the show, you can hit the show up at Soccer Morning anytime during the program. Let's do a couple of headlines before we grab Manuel Vett to talk about Ukrainian soccer. FIFA, they did a sneaky thing. They extended the rights of Fox and Univision through the 2026 World Cup without telling anybody. 
There was no open bidding process. This just happened via press release yesterday. This is stunning for a lot of reasons, but it's got to piss off the people at ESPN or anybody else who might have wanted to bid for the 2026 World Cup, which we don't know where that's happening yet. The thought around this is, the conspiracy theory thought, and hey, I could believe it, is that FIFA did this because they know they're going to be moving that 2022 World Cup out of primetime summer window into less-watched winter window. And this may be a concession made to Fox and Univision. We'll give you an extra World Cup for the price of whatever. I don't, who knows what's being paid here. This is not, for some people, this is going to be troubling news because of the way Fox has presented soccer. I'm going to, I'm going to wait until this summer and the Women's World Cup before I pass judgment on how good Fox might be by 2018. But it, yeah, it's, it's troubling. It is. And it's troubling not because, not just because of that. Fox hasn't been good. They got to get better. But because FIFA, again, is doing something underhanded that nobody knew was coming. Now, do they have an obligation to open up the bidding? It's, it's their product. They can, they can give the rights to whoever they want to based on whatever criteria they want. But at the same time, I would be pissed off if I was at ESPN or, I don't know, NBC, who may or may not have coveted the chance to cover a World Cup. In MLS expansion news, the league is no longer considering the bid of Las Vegas, Nevada. This comes via a letter that Don Garber sent to the uh, to the relevant parties in Vegas. Vegas has had a back-and-forth push-pull publicly, uh, a very public uh, question over the potential to build a stadium for an MLS team. And it seems that finally MLS has decided to pull the plug on Vegas being a potential candidate for this round of expansion. This leaves standing, by most people's estimation, Minneapolis and Sacramento. And I have to believe, based on the partnerships that they have forged and the amount of buzz in that city, that Sacramento is leading the pack right now. I, I don't know. We, we can get some clarification on what's going on in Minnesota. But you had the, the Vikings ownership behind one bid. You had Minnesota United's ownership behind another bid. I'd love to know where those things stand. But you wonder if those competing bids are actually a bit of a problem for MLS. Meanwhile, you have one clear group in charge, partnered with the city, partnered with the 49ers, partnered with the Kings in Sacramento, ready to go. And they have been incredible with their public relations campaign built for MLS. Stand up and applaud Sacramento, California, and their push for MLS. They've been fantastic. If you were wondering about the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament, we now know when it will be and where it will be, but not specifically where it will be. October in the United States, venues to be determined. Remember the last, we all have bad memories about the last time the United States tried to qualify for an Olympic tournament. Did not go well under Caleb Porter. They need to figure it out uh, for this tournament. Big, big tournament for the United States in October on home soil in order to qualify for those Olympics down in Rio. And in the MLS-CBA negotiation saga, we finally reached the point where the league and the players have decided to bring in a federal mediator. The Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service has been employed by the two parties to help mediate. Now, this isn't arbitration. This isn't that person gets to decide between two arguments which is the way to go. 
This is somebody who sits there, listens, and tries to be a conduit of conversation. If if you are yelling back and cro- back and forth across the table about free agency, and you just can't get through to that other person, they won't listen. You won't listen to them. The mediator is supposed to stand in the middle, be part of the solution in terms of communication. There is some thought that this might be the thing that keeps a work stoppage from happening. I'm not going to believe that until we have a, a kickoff on March 6th. For the time being, it's a good, solid sign that something is going to get moving here shortly. But everything we've heard, the rhetoric is hard. The players intend to strike. The league does not want free agency. Hopefully, a mediator can be the uh, the bridge between those two issues, or between the two parties on the one issue. Let's take a break. Manuel Vet will join us in just a minute to talk some Ukrainian soccer. It's a uh, it's a troubling time in Ukraine. What does it mean for the football? Don't go anywhere. Soccer morning. Backheel.com, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we are back on Soccer Morning. Enjoy now on the telephone by Manuel Vett. You can follow him on Twitter at Homo Sovieticus. He is, uh, he is there talking, um, talking many things, but specifically for us today, we grabbed him to talk about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, Manuel, how are you this morning? I'm all right. Thank you very much for having me on the show again. Th- thanks for coming back. Uh, this is, I, 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 Part of the reason for this show, and one of the things I like to do specifically, and certainly my producer Trevor knows this and, and works very hard for us to continue this trend, we, we like to to step outside of football on occasion and, and talk about some of these other issues. I mean, in, in Qatar, it's the uh, the indentured servitude that is affecting the World Cup preparations. There, there are bigger world issues that affect football on a lot of occasions, and, and certainly in Ukraine, that's this is one of those situations. And, and I will, uh, before we get into the specifics of it, I, I'd just like you to give our audience an overview of, despite the trouble in the country, despite the violence, despite the fighting, there's still football. How is that possible? Well, there is, the season is going on. It's going to restart in the end of February after the uh, long winter break, um, which had nothing to do with the conflict itself. It's just that it's just way too cold in Ukraine at uh, this time of the year to play football. Um, but yeah, there is football, um, and there is football. There's clubs involved whose cities are in the middle of the conflict zone. Um, I mean, I want to reiterate that yesterday there had been negotiations in the Belarusian capital Minsk, and um, a ceasefire was brokered that's going to come into effect on Sunday which uh, seems kind of odd. You, you introduce a ceasefire, but then you don't bring it into effect right away. Um, that said, it's very, um, it's, it's crazy really to think that right, there's five towns that are um, hosting, uh, sorry, four towns that are hosting first and second league clubs right now that are, that are in the middle of this conflict zone. And um, I mean, the recent news was that one of those clubs has now decided to fall, Stal Alchevsk, um, which are, one of the reasons was psychological. Um, they, they actually attempted to train in the city and the coach said, you know, we can hear the shelling, the shelling of, um, 
the shelling of the front line and uh, we're trying to train here it's just not possible but also the financial strain of having to play every game away from home mm. there there are there's a lot of talk about the power of this sport uh to to lift people in, in times of trouble uh, to be a to be an outlet um that is outside of of some of the the uh, the life and death issues that that human beings sometimes face, especially in conflict zones. I I, I don't want to put that on Ukrainian football unless that is something that is happening. Is this is this viewed as we need to keep the league going because it gives people something else to think about? Well, that's what Andrei Shevchenko said. Um, I mean, he's probably the most prominent Ukrainian footballer ever produced. Um, he said that we have to keep going no matter what, you know, the show must go on in a sense because it does provide um, people with an alternative. And, and to be fair, it is really, it is unfortunate because 95% of the country is not involved in this war. It's right. just that some of the cities, uh, a lot of the cities that produce some of the big top flight teams, Donetsk is one of them, Donetsk is home to three first division teams. Um, and that is right in the middle of the war zone. So it's really that the, the, those 5% of the country produce such an amazing amount of top flight football um, is really a very terrible coincidence in a sense. So, I mean, Shevchenko is right. It, it does provide sort of a, um, something to do. But, you know, at the same time, people that are living in Donetsk in the middle of this conflict, uh, we all have seen pictures of the airport and um, the shelling of buses, and et cetera, et cetera. It's really hard to believe that at this point they are getting anything out of uh, football. In those areas, certainly, it seems like it's almost uh, it's almost a little grotesque to continue to play. And, and yet, you know, there is probably some of that element that Shevchenko talks about. Um, the, um, the, the rest of the country, I mean, is there... And I've seen a no. I've seen a story that says that the league is is going to pair the number of teams that you mentioned already. That um, um, that uh, there, this one team has shut down Stalov Shek. Uh, is there is there a sense that the rest of the country that is not impacted by the conflict could continue to do this without involving the next teams or or any of these other teams that are in the conflict zone? Um. Well, they're running out of clubs. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, they already lost the two Crimean teams before yeah. the season started. Um, and we all know Shakhtar Donetsk. Shakhtar Donetsk is, um, even though Dynamo has all the history, but Shakhtar Donetsk is Ukraine's biggest club. Mm. It's, you could even argue it's the biggest club of the entire, of all of Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, currently they are able to sort of, play in Lviv, but they're taking a huge financial strain. Um, i give you an example, uh, Ilicevic, that they're playing in Mariupol and they're playing away from home and they're on the verge of bankruptcy. And, you know, that would be another team gone this time from the Ukrainian Premier League. So now you're faced with 13 teams. It's just, it's just the, the league is getting smaller and smaller and it's just, um, you know, you, you really find it hard to imagine that if this conflict keeps going, um, that they can keep this level of football up. What's the view in light of, of Russia's involvement in this conflict? What is the view uh, from within Ukrainian football ab about 
about the future of of how you know obviously Russia is is so large and and in in that part of the world and obviously they've injected themselves into this conflict directly but then we have a world cup coming up in in Russia in in less than 4 years uh Manuel how how is that how could they possibly reconcile these things as as Ukraine will go into qualifying for euros and for world cups in the future hopefully it's going to be difficult. Uh, that said, um, I did spend the spring in Georgia and uh, Georgia had a conflict with Russia in 2008. And while that feeling is still there, um, even today, um, the border was actually opened that year. And, you know, that was um, a few years after the conflict. Um, people move on very fast, uh, which is which is actually astonishing, really. Um, out of economic necessity or out of, you know, just because life goes on. Um, I think if the conflict ends, does end on Sunday, if that peace holds uh, very fragile at the moment, then I think things could move on quite fast. And four years is a very long time. Um, that said, of course, it will make things difficult. I mean, UEFA this season, for example, didn't pair clubs, uh, Ukrainian and Russian clubs in the Europa League. Um, so, I mean, we'll see. We'll see, I guess. What does this mean for, I mean, this is, again, this feels a little grotesque to ask, Manuel, but, but when it comes, uh, you know, eventually you hope that it, it, this, this ceasefire holds, that the, the peace is, is, uh, is reached in Ukraine, that, that Russia decides to go back to their own business for some time and, and whoever, uh, you know, whatever happens does not involve more loss of life. But what does this mean for the future of Ukrainian football, both in terms of the, the, the domestic league, which will have to, uh, you know, uh, reassess the situation and get some clubs back up and running if they can, and the national team, which, again, is in the midst of a European qualifying campaign? Yeah, um, they have a very strong national team. Um, interestingly enough, a better national team than Russia in a lot of ways. Um, moving on, after let's say the ceasefire holds and there is a they is a reconciliation in a, in some way. I mean, it will take a long time for some of the wounds to heal as. I mean, we, we always talking about Russia being involved in Eastern Ukraine, but it's all the Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians. Right. Yes, right. Which is, which is a civil war. And civil wars are a lot more scarring than conflicts between two countries because you have basically have people fighting amongst themselves, um, which makes this entire thing very difficult. So I think that, let's say, the peace holds. Um Infrastructure in Donetsk will have to be rebuilt. Um, a lot of infrastructure will have to be rebuilt, including the stadium that Shachta Donetsk is playing in because it was shelled during the conflict several times, including the airport, including important uh, train station, um, you know, everything really. And that will cost a lot of money. So even if this all holds, Shachta Donetsk will not say, okay, the, the war is over, we're going to be able to move back. They won't be able to do this for maybe another season or two. Mm. Again, I'm going to come back to Russia. Uh, as you said, this is a civil war, that there are Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians. Um, but again, Russia's involvement is sort of yeah. what the international community is focused on in a lot of ways. Yeah. We know Vladimir Putin has 
his uh, his ways about him. He does things. He doesn't seem to care what anybody else thinks. And in 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 this in this regard, again, the World Cup coming up in three and a half years in Russia, supposedly a a ruble that continues to have to struggle, that has crashed. Um, questions over preparations for Russia, which we all knew was going to come eventually, especially in the last in, in the uh, aftermath of Sochi and the in the, in the Winter Olympics. Um, is there? Do you believe UEFA or FIFA has a responsibility to review some of the things that Russia is involved with? on the international stage as it relates to the football eventually that they're going to be part of? Oh, that's, you know, that's such a difficult question. Um, I mean, that, that's the old argument. If you review Russia, um, who would you give the World Cup to then in that sense? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, to take to take your home country, the U.S., for example, would you give it to the U.S.? But what about involvements in a whole bunch of other countries? Sure. Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very you, tricky question. Everybody's got their tricky question because, yeah. like, where do you draw the line, right? I'm not saying that uh, one country is more innocent than another. That's sure. op- that opens Pandora's box right there. But I'm just saying, where do you draw the line? So I think this is very tricky for UEFA and FIFA in a sense. I think that the World Cup is going to happen in Russia for sure. 100%, um, unless the, the world ends tomorrow, of course. But um, the World Cup is going to take place in Russia. Um, it's The big question is, of course, in what kind of form will it take place there? Yeah. Um, you, you spoke about some of the financial issues. Uh, it's going to cost the Russian government a lot of money. We all remember how much Sochi costs, and a World Cup is... A completely different thing than the Olympics. The the uh, the cities identified to potentially host the World Cup. I, I'm not sure where we are in that process. I don't know if they finished. They have a solid list. I mean, Moscow is obviously going to host games. Saint Petersburg. Um, I, beyond that, I I don't know. And and as you said, it's going to cost Russia a lot of money. Um, but let's 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 turn back to to Ukraine. And again, you know. As I mentioned, you know, coming out of this, and this is um, this is a part of the world that has seen its share of of conflict. Um, whether or not that is as irreparable does irreparable damage to the society, the ability for these people to to get along in a sense that that makes Ukraine a unified country, I think, is obviously more important. But is is are we going to see? I mean, you, you mentioned Andrei Shevchenko. They just had the uh, retirement of, of a Ukrainian great. I mean, we can talk about his, his career overall, but Andrei Ver- Veronin has retired as well. Is, is, is there any concern that Ukraine's not going to be a, a, a player in the world stage? I mean, are you concerned that in 20 years we may have been, we may be talking about a glory days of, of Ukrainian football in, in the beginning of the 2000s? Um, no, I mean, I don't think so, because even during the time of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine was always the center of football. That's always where Dynamo Kiev was the most successful club, together with Spartak Moscow, of course. But they were the, they were the, in the 70s and 80s, they were the shining example of Soviet football, and they did this with an all-Ukrainian squad. Um, and I think that, in a sense, some of the financial difficulties that will come now um, 
in the aftermath of this uh, conflict will mean that um, some of the clubs may have to force more into, on youth development, which is something that Ukrainian football has always been good at. And I think, uh, if anything, you will see probably even more young Ukrainian talents. And they have a very talented uh, youth setup at the moment, right, as well. So, you know, I always expect there will be always a few bright Ukrainian players on the world stage. Certainly hope so. Um, let's just briefly, uh, as I mentioned, on the occasion of Veronin's retirement, talk talk a little bit about his career. Uh, give me a sense of, of what kind of figure he was in Ukrainian football. Obviously, he played in very various countries around Europe in Germany in in England in in uh, Russia certainly what yeah. what kind of player was he I always really liked Moron and um he uh played for Leverkusen quite a long time and then uh later on for Berlin he he also had a stint at uh, Liverpool but I think they didn't really use him quite well um it was one of those examples where a player that functions very well in one league um, and then moves abroad didn't work so well um, in uh, another league. Um, he was uh, just part of the Berbatov Voronin setup at Leverkusen. Uh, you, you remember Berbatov? He played at uh, Man United. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, they actually, uh, I think they scored one season. Uh, don't don't quote me on the exact numbers, but it was something really insane. I think Berbatov had twenty goals, and uh, Voronin had seventeen or eighteen. So um, really really great player i always really loved watching him and then he was part of um Hertha bsc berlin um and they almost reached the champions league with a team that wasn't that great but he kept scoring and scoring uh i really always liked him he was uh, one of those really underrated forwards in a sense um but really deadly in front of the goal but you know, uh, he moved. He moved to Dynamo Kiev towards the end of his career, and that was, uh, in a lot of ways, a little bit of retirement football, I think, for him already. So, um, his he, he retired now officially from football, but he has been uh, on a decline for quite a while now. Manuel Vett joining us, talking about uh, football in Ukraine as uh, that conflict hopefully comes to an end. We don't know; it's impossible to know right now. But obviously, they. A, uh, a civil war uh, with Russia's involvement is, is taking center stage in the world. And hopefully um, not only will the country recover, Manuel, but, but the football will, will recover and, and, and the people will have that outlet. And we know how important the game is, uh, is around the world, especially uh, to people who have, have had those kinds of strife um, hit their countries. I appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show again. Follow Manuel at Homo Sovieticus on Twitter. It's a fascinating follow. Let's take a break. When we come back. Will Parchman from Top Drawer Soccer will join us. We're going to talk NYCFC's unique approach to academy development. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, and I'm joined now via Skype by Will Parchman from Top Drawer Soccer, man who more often than not puts a nice little literary spin on American soccer topics. Hi, Will. Hello, hello. How are you this you. morning? Doing great. Doing great. It's, it, you are Seattle-based, right? 
I am yes. So it's nice. It's nice and early. So we're going to crack open your brain uh, early in the morning. There, Seattle time. Uh, the reason to bring you on, Will, specifically to start is this uh, this approach by New York City FC to their academy situation. We know that there are many different approaches. Some teams have wholly uh, contained academies. Some teams partner with local clubs. NYCFC has done something else. Can you describe it in layman terms for people who? Who may be interested in what they're trying to do in the New York market? Yeah, sure. So, what NYCFC basically said was, you know, we're we're, we're the newcomers on the block. We we don't know the New York um, development scene as well as we would like to, and that basically precluded them from creating an academy. They didn't want to dive straight into the development academy. They didn't want to create these devoted U14, U16, U18 age divisions that were housed by them. So what they said was, we're going to take affiliates. That is, these clubs that already exist, basically all they're going to do is slap their um, their logo on their sleeve and they're going to send uh, coaches to occasional practices. And that's pretty much it. And basically they're doing that in the hopes that eventually they're going to build up enough rapport with families and players that they're going to be able to basically bring them in to their academy. Until then, they're doing this affiliate program. They're up to 11 right now, um, and that was enough in their mind to create this league. Now, what this league is, is they're taking U9, U10, and U11 age groups and saying, we're going to self-contain all of our affiliates in this one league, and at those three age brackets specifically, and to say every game played in that league will be um, done by the precepts of the city football network. Now, that obviously is Manchester City. What that is exactly, I don't think anybody could really tell you beyond, you know, maybe Claudio Reyna and a couple high-placed guys in Manchester, but uh, it's basically them controlling the process from the U9 to the U11 age bracket and that's kind of setting their agenda for what they want to do down the road because they will eventually have a development academy that's just a matter of time Mm -hmm. so it's basically saying we're going to own new york city um at this sort of crucial developmental age range there are a couple of things here one is is obviously about the other mls team in the area and maybe we'll throw we definitely should throw in the cosmos and their influence in that area as well in terms of of academy situations but Again, to sort of like boil this down, explain to me why this wholly contained league with affiliates is different, is fundamentally different and perhaps more uh, audacious than, say, what what the union did when they jumped into the Philadelphia market. Right. So other clubs have had pre academy leagues. That is, right now, the development academy starts at the U14 age range and also, you know, incorporates U16 and U18. They're adding a U12 age range in 2016, but for now, clubs, you have to start with a U14. Clubs have had pre-academy um, teams before, but you have to enter them in different leagues. So, for instance, U.S. Club Soccer um, has a pre-academy league that you know some teams have. It doesn't really go beyond U12. So, basically, other clubs have said, you know, we're going to have these development academy clubs and then sort of weekly pair up with other um, other area clubs to run day camps and sleepaway camps and things like that for 
this specific age range, but nobody's ever basically said, we're going to pull all of these clubs that we're affiliated with and we're going to basically seclude them in our, our own league so that we can, we can give them the instruction that we want. It's basically them controlling the process. And nobody else has done that at this age range this systematically ever that I'm aware of. Um, so basically that creates this sort of vacuum where they can scout and, and you know, run the drills they want to run. I mean, it's not going to be a league in the sense that, you know, they're, they're even, you know, keeping points and win-loss records. But, you know, it's, it's basically a chance for them to develop. In terms of the, of, of the Red Bulls, uh, what does this mean? Again, you know, the MLS is, is very much ad hoc. You know, we'll deal with it when we have to deal with it. It seems that that way with the, most, most of the player personnel rules. That, is that also the situation on the ground when it comes to this academy uh, situation between the new club NYCFC and the Red Bulls, whose whose territories are certain to overlap? Yeah, yeah. I think you know it's one of the funny things about MLS is sometimes the the rules exist and no, just nobody knows about them. Um, I think that may be the case here because you know there's there's only been one other case where um, two clubs have shared the same city in this in this way. Obviously. It's, with the Galaxy and Chivas, and what MLS basically said was, you guys are going to have overlapping spheres of influence where um, you, you're just free. You, you both have free reign to LA, just because. I mean, they shared the same stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made the most sense for everybody else. There's this sort of catchment area, as as you kind of alluded to, that that you, you know you have this sort of um, this area that's just yours. Nobody else can scout in this region. Well. The, the smallest nucleus that you have is you have a 25-mile radius around your stadium where nobody else can scout. That's what, you know, there's a 75-mile one, you know, around Philly and New York, and then that one overlaps. So, that, you know, it's, it's really complicated. But basically that, that nobody can touch this 25-mile radius around your stadium. Well, for the Red Bulls, that's a big deal because that's pretty much all of Manhattan. It's Brooklyn. It's, you know, that, that sort of northeastern area of New New Jersey, it's a population-rich area. Well, if you look at a map where uh, where Yankee Stadium is and where Red Bull Arena in Harrison is, for the you know the Bronx and Harrison, that's twenty miles. So there's never been a situation where two stadiums have been within that twenty-five mile radius of one another. So it's it's a situation where half, uh, I believe, about half of New York City FC's affiliates. Are, are actually in that Red Bull catchment area where, you know, historically you're not supposed to scout. Now, MLS may have said, NYCFC, you've got free reign in New York. Red Bulls, you've got free reign in New York for, for homegrown purposes. We, we don't, you know, as, as far as I know, that, that information's not, not public. But um, it, it is interesting. I'm sure, you know, Red Bull fans do have a little bit of a reason to raise their eyebrows just to say, you know, hey, this new kid on the block, they're basically saying, you know, these affiliates are becoming our feeders. And, you know, where does that leave Red Bull? It's, it's kind of up in the air. So I'll be interested to see, you know, as NYCFC starts up its academy, how that plays in to where all of a sudden now they're plucking kids that were formerly in that Red Bull sort of pipeline. Now, the Cosmos are in an ASL. They don't have to follow MLS rules. They don't have to worry about catchment areas um, in terms of competing with the Red Bulls and NYCFC. So how do they how do they play into the New York scene at the moment, as you understand it? And obviously, look, you start an academy, you plop Raul at the top, 
there's going to be some pull there. Yeah, honestly, if I'm looking at just the the, the state of, of, of recruiting to development academies in or just academies in general in, in the New York area, I think the Cosmos are as well positioned as anybody. Uh, as you mentioned, they have no rules. They're not beholden to MLS's sort of uh, interesting, I should say, rule system just in terms of of, of inner city politics. So what Raul can basically do is walk into a, you know, one of these affiliate uh, practices and, and start chatting up parents and say, mm-hmm. you know, we, we got a really cool thing going on. I think they're based in Hempstead. Um, so he could basically say, hey, look, we've got our own area. We've got, you know, we've got a really cool thing going on. And he doesn't have to worry about MLS. He doesn't have to worry about catchment areas. He doesn't have to worry about, um, you know, even relationships uh with, with with these clubs i mean they're 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 in different leagues and um and who knows what the future holds but um but the cosmos basically have have free reign in a lot of ways in ways that that the other two clubs don't and uh, as you mentioned raul is just he's a huge uh marketing tool that you can use mm-hmm. just um that he's both playing and uh and on, on the front office side so I, i'd be interested to see i, I think Judging by the Cosmos past, they don't have a whole lot of qualms sort of stepping on toes. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised, I'll say, if, uh, if if some interesting things started happening with, with player movement. Well, look, well, this is this is sports, and there's a competitive uh, gene in every single person who gets involved in a sporting enterprise. And in this case, you have three of them. And I wonder, look, you, you know, obviously NYC and FC and, and the Red Bulls are going to play some games on the field and, and knock down, drag out stuff there. And maybe the Cosmos get one of these teams in the, in the U.S. Open Cup, you would hope so. And I, I just wonder, like, you know, we make a joke around here about New York soccer wars, but there, there's something to be said for the, for the notion that these teams could be hurting each other more than they are helping themselves if they decide to focus on battling it out with another club rather than say, the rebels focus on Jersey, which is obviously a rich area, and and the Cosmos focus on Long Island, which I'm sure has plenty of talented players. And somehow NYCFC leverage what's in the city plus a little bit wider area. I mean, is that better for the clubs, or should they be going for the same players and and affiliations? No, I you know I th- I think it should be to where if I'm MLS and I'm looking at this this homegrown situation, I open it up and I say all of New York. <clears throat> Excuse me. And all of this sort of uh, this radius that that we had established, you know, that that's that's fair game, and see what happens. And you know, New York's a big place. You know, it's not like you're dropping three big clubs into a uh, a mid-sized city. So right. um, it, it's basically kind of a survival of the fittest thing to where you're saying um, there are enough players to go around in this city. You just have to find them, and I think that. In itself is a development tool uh-huh. where you're you're basically straining out um, the weak, if you will. And I, I think the the problem that I can see coming into play is you know NYCFC's ridiculous resources. You know I I I saw City's brand new academy the other day for the first time. It's just obscene. And you know pumping that kind of those kind of resources into a city where you know the Red Bulls ha- do have resources, the Cosmos as well lesser so but you know that that could make an imbalance but at the same time you know the red bulls have been ensconced in that you know in that region for 20 years they, they should have no excuses sure. for losing kids absolutely so. the red bulls should have no excuses so they should have an advantage even if they 
aren't spending on the level of NYCFC or the Cosmos, who who do have significant resources, as you said. So I, I guess then I'll flip it over. Is it, it you? You've, you're basically saying that some sort of player development arms race is good for New York soccer and therefore good for American soccer. Yes, okay. I do. I, th- I think that that's the case because um, I think spending begets more spending. I mean, at, at a certain point, you, you know, big clubs are going to outspend other clubs. But I think you have to allow it to get to that point. And I know MLS is wary about, uh, you know, ratcheting up, you know, these spending races just because it doesn't wants to control the amount um, that clubs spend just because, you know, it, it doesn't want it to get out of control. But um but, you know, at least on a, a development scale, I mean, there's only so much you can really spend. At a certain point, you have to develop. You've got to teach these kids. You've got to be in contact with them. And some of that spending is just pointless. I mean, I, you can have a great academy, but if you don't have the coaches um, and the systems in place to teach them, I mean, you could do just as much in a dirt field as you can in, you know, a $30 million uh, academy that you've developed. One so, thing, sorry, go ahead. So from that aspect, I just think that um, that they should have they should all have free reign in New York and you know let the best man win. Is there an argument that everybody should have free reign everywhere, or are you still are you of the opinion that these catchment areas actually serve a purpose for some clubs? I, I mean, I see. I'll say this: I'll see. I see where MLS was going with this because you know you you want to give them. F- first right, you know, let's say the Colorado Rapids, you want to give them first right to a kid in like, say, Pueblo, Colorado, who, you know, had come up and, you know, he's obviously the the Rapids is, it, it makes sense for him economically, uh, more so than FC Dallas. FC Dallas comes and poaches him and all of a sudden he's, you know, I, you know how, how does he make that drive? So I, I understand in a lot of ways it protects kids, um, but they're horribly imbalanced. I mean, you look at a club like Sporting Kansas City, which gets like all of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. Well, which that's is, based on population. Well, there's nobody in those states. We, we, <laughs> yeah, but uh, there's like 15 million people in the in that that area, which is the same as the population of New York City and and surrounding areas, essentially. Sure, sure, but some of the um, the urban areas they don't match up. I mean, some of them there's like six or seven million difference. Uh-huh. Now we can debate whether that matters. Whether you know the the cushions are enough, but well, I just think you, you that just, they're they you can make it you can make it drawn. Okay, well, fair, fair enough. You can make it overly complicated. You can start worrying about things like, well, look, Jersey's got a tradition of soccer, but you know Oklahoma City doesn't. So why does it matter? You know, right. how do we balance these things out? So FC Dallas gets Oklahoma, but they don't really have the same. You know, whatever. Obviously, Texas is a big soccer state too, so that's a bad example. But sporting. As you said, if they get Kansas and Nebraska, then a lot of people are going to be going, who cares that they get those states? Not that there's not some talented kids there, but there's going to be a smaller proportion of talented kids in those areas than in a, in a five mile radius in the middle of, of, of New York, uh, of the New York metropolitan area. So that's, that's obviously an issue. I guess, I I guess that when we talk about development here and, and there are people that, that believe in MLS is despite the fact they're investing some money. And I know you've been tracking down in the last couple of years you've been tracking down how much these clubs are actually spending on their academies and don garber has been out in front and saying oh we're spending a million per team or whatever the, the number is that mls is still not doing enough or, or is not has not uh, progressed far enough uh, in terms of the timeline as they should are uh, where is that in your opinion right now and is mls actually addressing some of those issues in your mind or are we just 
we're just gonna have to sit here and wait for the for the real the first real superstar and and maybe i'm being harsh on a couple of kids but the first real superstar to come out of an academy and not have to go to college or you know the 17 year old the tom the tommy thompson who actually is you know is a superstar yeah i mean i think at a certain point the money uh is what it is and you can't i mean you can't manufacture it so i think right now garver's kind of throwing out this nebulous uh money figure of 20 to 30 million a year on development um which works out to <coughs> excuse me a couple million uh, uh per team i guess I, I think no team annually or like something like over five years annually it spent more than one or two million on development which you know if you look at what germany did in 2000 when it said you know our system isn't good enough it basically invested something in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 million dollars per club over the next 10 years to develop these sort of regional and local training centers and national training centers and you know that that's basically what it takes to create what Germany created. Now, that's not the only way to go about it, but that money doesn't, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that that money sort of started sure. creating these Mario Goza, you know, Philip Lahm type players. So where we are right now is that we're doing as much, in my opinion, as much as we can with the system in place, with the money available as systematically or as, as is systematically possible. So, yeah. Um, I, I think you you may see a superstar trickle through, um, but it'll be in spite of the amount of money we're spending, just because it's just not there. Yeah. You know, I, I just I just wondered that just we're going to run out of time, so we can't have this full discussion. But maybe for another day, you just wonder how you convince these clubs and these owners, and some of them are of deeper pockets than than others. Obviously, NYCFC has unlimited resources, but somebody like. Merritt Paulson in Portland is working with a different budget. How you convince these owners to go and dump eight, ten, twelve million dollars over a couple of years into development when the numbers game just tells you that you're going to get one or two kids maybe out of your academy, especially in a, in a soccer culture that that like the United States, which is not Germany. Is that really worth the investment? I mean, I'm not saying that they shouldn't spend it. I would love for them to, as a fan, will. But from a business perspective, is that the right way to go? Oh, I mean, if 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 you sat down with you know Rob Heinemann or Merritt Paulson and and tried to pitch this, I mean, they would look at you like you were crazy. I mean, there, there's almost zero return on investment in this. Right. Um, we we don't have sort of that created infrastructure to where they would even have reason to believe there would be one that they would create. Um, it's it hasn't been done before. So what I think you're going to have to see is just some enterprising mad genius with a bajillion dollars who steps in and says, <laughs> you know, I, I want us to emulate the best in the world. So I'm going to basically build all of this, you know, that some huge campus out of the goodness of my own developmental heart <laughs> and to say, we're going to develop the next great superstar and it's going to be a sunk cost. I mean, yeah. it's going to lose that money basically. Um, and it's, it's just going to be for love of the game. And that's that's what honestly that's what drives development elsewhere. It's not just the money. It's it's sort of the um, the motives behind it and why you're spending it because you know you're going to lose a lot of it eventually. So uh, um, I think that until we get to that point where you just have these Roman Abramoviches who are just 
you know, dumping money on the game, mm-hmm. um, we're going to have what we have now. Yeah, the, I, I think that a lot of people have had that that dream for a long time. American soccer needs a sugar daddy. We just need somebody to step yeah. up and uh, I, I agree. And, I agree and drop a bunch of money. Uh, how much money does Clore have down in Florida? Can he? No, you know. Again, this is, <laughs> it, it. It's there's a lot. People kind of forget how much money it's going to take to get to those points, and and you yeah. can't just make that money appear out of nowhere. And meanwhile, MLS clubs have to try to stay within a financial we can't have both we can't have free agency and teams being able to spend 10 million dollars a year on salaries will uh with the cap and then also say they need to be dumping 20 million dollars into their academies from a business perspective mls doesn't isn't there yet but but maybe clubs like the cosmos and and obviously nasl and usl uh, clubs who are independent can help fill some of those gaps even if they're operating on a much different level except for the cosmos yeah, well, you know, competition drives all that, which is why I think it's it's a good thing to start opening up some of these um, these homegrown catchment areas. And I think, you know, the Cosmos start spending a lot of money, and people start thinking, you know, where are they even getting this money? Um, and that, you know, that's what it takes. And so maybe the Red Bulls ownership group sees that and says, you know, wow, we've really, really got to step up our game. Or you know, let's say. You open up the catchment areas and all of a sudden, you know, the Portland Timbers are in Seattle scouting, you know, crossfire FC players and the Sounders are like, hey, we, maybe we need to go to a few more practices or, you know, maybe we need to start stepping up our game. So not that that isn't happening already in some measure, but if you basically, you know, open all of that up and, you know, whether we're there or not, we can debate that, you know, that, that may be down the, down the road a ways, but, um, you know, the, that sort of interest and 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 money investment, um, in my opinion, sort of drives innovation, um, drives competition, and then you know it's 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 that sort of dreaded dreaded arms race that MLS is kind of not wanting to get itself into. That eventually it will be pulled into at some point. It's just a matter of time. All right, very quickly, Will, before I move on, uh, a couple of questions about some young uh, American players in, in the news recently. One, Julian Green, obviously he's um, he's not with Bayern Munich this season. He's on loan. It's, it's, it's supposed to be about playing time for him. He's 19 years old. He needs to be uh, he needs to be on the field, and there's reports that he's being demoted to the U23 team. What do you make of, and he came out and said, I, I haven't heard that. No one's talked to me. What do you make of this news and the potential for how it will affect how quickly Julian Green really arrives in the way a lot of people expect him to? Yeah, I think for him, it's a little unfortunate because he, you know, I think one of the reasons why he got so much press is because he's with Bayern Munich. And, you know, obviously he's, he's a, he's a quality talent. You watch him play for the national team. I mean, you, you may not see that sort of phenom level uh, left winger that, that a lot of us kind of um, thought we would, but, you know, it's, he, he's a good prospect. Um, I think the fact that Bayern Munich was attached to his name made him like an astronomical prospect and uh, maybe inflated his value a little bit. And so now he's in a situation where he basically needs to get out of Bayern because um, he's just, he's not going to play there. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I thought this, this loan was a good, thing uh, turns out the team has um, has had its struggles uh, positionally he's not a great fit in their system um, and then you know at this point as long as he's not playing u20 minutes if he can get u23 minutes in in the in a Bundesliga setup that's not terrible mm-hmm. um, but you know I, I would like ideally to see Bayern sell him off 
um, to a smaller club where he can get first team minutes in a you know the first team environment, uh, you know a senior team environment. So um, he. he U23 is not terrible. It's just not really going to help his development a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, and lastly here, Will Trapp has some comments after his stint with the U.S. Men's National Team. His first call-up, his first minutes. He's obviously an incredible uh, young talent for the Columbus – oh, sorry, for Crew SC, Will. Uh, and he made he, he said some things that were interesting. One, he said, you know, obviously I wasn't played out – played in my natural position. And we can discuss whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing for a young player like him. Uh, but it's certainly one of Klinsman's go-to moves. And he also said he was never giving any, given any direct instruction as to what he was supposed to do. Do you have any problems with either one of those things? I will say first that I do not have a problem with how Klinsman deployed him. Um, I think Trap plays a little bit deeper with Columbus than he needs to necessarily. I mean, I, I think he's neither an out-and-out out number six who sits in front of the back line, nor is he a box-to-box midfielder. I think he's somewhere in between a six and an eight where um, he's more of a regista. You know, he likes to spray these sort of 25-yard passes. and uh, um, So I, I don't have a problem with Klinsman sort of shuffling his position necessarily. What I do have a problem with is Trap having basically no idea what he's doing when he gets on the field, um, especially considering that he's not playing where he naturally plays. So... This sort of feeds into that narrative of, well, you know, Klinsman's a training champion and he doesn't really focus a, a whole lot on the tactics, which would, you know, follow with, with some of the criticisms from his time with Bayern Munich. So I think it's a little worrying, honestly. Yeah. I think, you know, especially with a, a kid like Trap, who's, you know, 22, he needs instruction. You need to at least give him something of a framework to where when he steps on the field, you know, he, he knows his sort of the way he's interacting with players. I think maybe Klinsman would have thought, oh, you know, this is only a friendly. It's just a quick run out. It's no, it's no big deal. But I would argue that every second you play on the field is a big deal. I mean, yeah. you need to know exactly what you're doing. Um, and even if it's not exactly what you're doing, you have to have an idea, a tactical idea of, of how you're being. Deployed. Yeah, look, uh, there there may be something to a. Hey, let's throw him out there, see how he does. He'll he'll have to adapt. I'll learn sure. something about him, but I don't I don't buy that because Klinsman has a reputation for this. Will I mean we heard from Philip Lom after his uh, after Klinsman's stint in Bayern Munich that that they were put out there and they had to figure it out on their own because the the, the head coach the manager wasn't giving them instruction. Say this, I mean he 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 hasn't given himself the benefit of the doubt in this matter, no. and it's not. Not that you know this is the worst thing that's ever ha- happened to you know Will Trapp's development, but um, on a national team level, you'd like to have your you know your national team coach maybe pull him aside for fifteen to twenty seconds before he steps on the field and say you know hey I I want you to inter- interchange in the midfield like this or you know something anything any right. kind of framework. So yeah. I, I think as you mentioned, Klinsman's just not uh, his past is not giving him the benefit of the doubt. Will Parchman from Top Drawer Soccer. You should be following him. It's Will Parchman on Twitter. Thank you for your insight uh, on everything we've talked about, Will. Appreciate it. Cheers, man. Appreciate it. There we go. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will open up the phone lines, get that Twitter machine running. Bill from Rockland County has tried to get in like six times. I apologize, Bill. Now is your time. 347-756-6276. Be right back.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go. 347-756-6276 is your phone number on a Friday to get in on Soccer Morning. Let's address some of those things we just talked to Will Parchment about. Let's, let's address this Will Trap situation just a little bit. Again, Jurgen Klinsmann does not have the benefit of the doubt. He has an established reputation as a guy who says, go feel the game. Go out there and let the game, let the, let the game flow through you. And that'll help you to, to get into the, and, and look, it, it's all kumbaya. It's very nice. It's all, you know, hey, let's all sit around and, and hum songs and speak to the sun god. I don't know. Whatever. The spirit of the earth. The spirit of the game. But at the same time, it does not allow for a young player like Will Trapp to get himself ready for a, his first international appearance. And we know he's a talented kid. And I'd love to be, to see him in a position to succeed. And that's my biggest issue here. What is the head coach's job? You put your players in the best position to succeed. I don't care if that means 10 men behind the ball, a 4-3-3 with an attacking flair, a diamond. I don't care what formation it is. I care that you put your, your players in the best position to succeed. And as far as I can tell, not giving Will Trap instructions when you're playing him out of his usual position, which is, again, fine on some level. There are, there are issues in competitive matches where Clemson's done, done this, where we all have rabble-rabble moments. In a game against Panama, hey, whatever. I mean, Chile, what, whatever. But at least tell the kid what he's supposed to do. That you're going to be change, interchanging with Yedlin like this, or you're going to push forward. We want you to push forward. And it, no, we want you to, to make just something. Something. Anything. Hey, go out there and... Pass the ball to Michael Bradley. That's that's something. That's at least something. Three four seven seven five six six two six two seven six. Finishing out a week of shows here at Soccer Morning again. To recap, we didn't do a show yesterday, so don't look on your iTunes feed for that. It doesn't exist. We are partnered with so- with World Soccer Talk now. That's our big news that we announced on Wednesday. Again, very excited. To have the future of the show secured. Very excited to be partnered with a legacy website like World Soccer Talk. Go check them out. Follow them, follow them on Twitter and all of that stuff. We can talk. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about this development situation. Will Parts been talking about NYCFC and their approach. We're talking about the Cosmos being part of a New York market in which they don't have to follow the same type of rules that the Red Bulls and NYCFC are supposed to be following. It's a free-for-all for them. And more power to them. Go develop your academy with, with Raul's name at the top of it. Again, attracting certain kids, attracting certain teams. And there are questions. I mean, it, we live in a country where consistently soccer executives say that there is an unlimited potential Unlimited, unlimited. Think about what that means for a second. Whether or not it's true, just think about the fact that they say it consistently. 
unlimited potential in the number of people who could watch the sport on television, the amount of money that could flow into the game, the, the, the number of teams, not unlimited, but you could argue that MLS could grow out to 30 teams and it wouldn't be unreasonable. They'd have to split up. They'd have to have divisions, whatever. But you, you, you also need a second division and a third division in order to fill out, fill in the gaps. But we live in a country with, again, vast resources, player on top of player on top of player. And there's the argument, the argument is that we're just not good at identifying those players. And then once we identify the ones that we do find, we're not very good at getting them ready to be professionals. And MLS has created a situation now where, okay, it's great to have a homegrown sign and come through. It, it really is. It's fantastic. But don't sign a kid just to sign a kid. When you look at the Red Bulls and, and 20 years, uh, uh, 20 years head start on New York City FC should mean they shouldn't be worried. They should have their stuff together. Now, they weren't trying to, to develop kids back in 96. That's a relatively recent effort, but you should still have the relationships there. You still know where, you still know where you should be looking. And they've brought through homegrown signing after homegrown signing that's turned into nothing. Where's where's Sashir hot right now? I used to follow him on Twitter. I hope he's playing somewhere, but I don't know where he is. Give me another Red Bulls Academy flop. And maybe it's not even their fault. Maybe they were signed too early. Maybe they shouldn't have been signed to pro contracts. No, there was no USL Pro team back then, or USL team, excuse me, rebrand, for them to go get minutes and develop. That's Perhaps that's a game changer. That, that, that's the type of game changer that we're going to see that's going to help create a situation where these homegrown sightings actually do become consistent contributors. And our problem with that, our problem with development in the United States is that we're looking for the American Messi. We look around all of these clubs and, and we go every all these academies they should be producing players and we should be do, we should be producing stars. We should be producing more world-class players. Well, we we don't have a world-class player yet. Why not? Where is he? And what what's more likely out of these academies is that you're going to get two or three average to better than average players. Maybe a season, maybe every two seasons. And that's not necessarily an indictment of the academy. That's just the way this works. You throw a thousand kids into an academy, you're going to get one out who can actually play and who actually have a 10 or 12 or 15 year career in the sport. It's the way it works. Almost more important than how much money you throw in. Well, maybe not more important, but as important is just the sheer numbers that you can get. Hey, is he reasonably talented at eight years old? Bring him in. Ten years old? Bring him in. Because you never know. You never know what's going to click when he's 13 or 14 or 18. Let's go to the phones. Vince from Toronto. What's going on, man? Hi, right, Jason. How's it going? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, it's Friday. Uh, you know, uh, it's a bit late, man, but, but I'm very happy to, to, to see you, uh, you and Trevor, uh, get in that partnership with World Soccer Talk. It's a bit very oh, much. I appreciate deserved. that. I appreciate that, man. Go ahead. 
Yeah, you know, Jason, it's um, it's the same thing up here in Canada when it comes to you know our homegrown players and 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 you know uh, how MLS is is using them or how the Canadian teams are using them. I mean, you know, we're probably even worse uh, when it comes to looking for that Canadian Messi, um, you know, and and our best prospect arguably isn't even an MLS player. It's an NASL player in Hanson Boakai with, with FC Edmonton. Um, and then, you know, he's a guy with, with bags of potential and, and, you know, watching some of the games at the U20 championship, despite the fact Canada was, 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 was a crap show. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use a mild language because it's a family show. Um, he was, you know, he was a bright spot. Um, and you know, a guy like him, uh, and you know, th- this is another conversation when it comes to how, how, you know, uh, American and Canadian soccer view the NASL, um, in relation to MLS and how, you know, our players in the NASL properly valued when it comes to, you know, them moving on from the league. Um, you know, people ask me about Ibarra and Ramirez. Why aren't they coming to MLS? Uh, are MLS teams lowballing NASL clubs when it comes to this talent? Is MLS talent the only good talent in North America, which is ridiculous. But, um, you know, uh, and it happens around, right? Many, many homegrown players get signed. I mean, what's up with Jack McBean and, and uh, uh, Jose Villarreal, right? Do they have a future at the LA Galaxy? Both of them highly touted homegrown prospects. Um, you know, thank God for these USL teams now, for these players to be given that chance to play. I mean, we've seen the casualties at Montreal already with Zachariah Masudi, who I believe was the first homegrown player uh, that they, or one of the first homegrown players that Montreal signed, who got loaned out to Ottawa and then now has been cut. Um, from from the Montreal team and Carl Wimet, a guy who recently uh, has been playing a lot more for Canada, him getting waived by Montreal, which came as a big shock here uh, up here and an, unfor- an unfortunate one because he's a guy who a lot of us you know really want to see succeed. Mm. So you know um, it's up to the MLS clubs. I mean, if they're just signing homegrown players to have players under contract and not have to pay against the cap or anything, then that's a problem. They should be signing players on merit and who they believe have a proper future with the club. Yeah, there's there's that. I mean, and again, the, the we're talking about the money that goes into these academies and how much these these clubs are actually spending. And when Don Garber says we're spending thirty million dollars, it doesn't sound that impressive when you break it out. It's a million and a half, uh, you know, not even that per team. You, you have to you have to consider again, sort of the big picture. You, you can rail against it if you want, uh, Vince, and I'm not saying you will, but you have to consider the return that they're getting, which is essentially nothing. Now. The, the, the notion is, oh, well, MLS should become the type of league that creates talent and then sells the, that talent on. Well, there has to be a market for that talent. You have to create a situation where you've got an 18-year-old kid who's maybe good enough to sell and can bring you $3 million to offset your cost so that you can spend more money on, on your academy. But it, that is, it's, it's not, it's not as simple as just say, just saying, well, this is something we should, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're, we're, it's not that we're missing steps. And as Will kind of laid out, you, the real, the only real reason, the only real way to get the, where we want to go is to just dump money down the drain and hope that you catch lightning in a bottle with one or two kids. No, you're right. I mean, and at the same time, uh, Europe, if that's the market we're exporting to, um, there has to be a proven track record, uh, of, you know, players going over there and succeeding. I mean, you know, Clint Dempsey was, is a full, is a full American product and he succeeded and you got, you know, a, a bigger number of guys, you know, like, like a Breck Shea who, who, you know, leave, leave MLS to much fanfare. Oh, this is a great American that's, you know, going to go, going to go do well in Europe. And then they completely fail, 
Now, is that simply just a situation? Are they moving too high up a level at first instead of uh, perhaps going to a different league and, you know, honing their skills? You know, that's an argument that can be made. Uh, but at the same time, if I'm a European club as well, right, do I look at the North American market? Um, where I can get players for, you know, three to four million, especially with the hassle of having to deal with MLS instead of a team directly? Um, or do I just go to South America where there's abundance of cheap talent yeah, that yeah, I can yeah. get? Uh, the, the, um, so, you know, you know obviously well. they have the, the European clubs are have also scouted Africa heavily. They've obviously got South America where they can go. It's You're creating another market. And again, you're, you're opening up the question of whether or not the American kids are going to be as far along as their South American or African co- uh, contemporaries. Then, then you're, and then the whole situation with player movement in general, Vince, is shady to begin with. And I'm not going to put nefarious activities on, on the part of all European clubs, but there's enough of that that you really, that, you know, you have to wonder about where, where American soccer really fits into some of the player trafficking stuff that goes on. And, you know, we, we've got enough issues with Barcelona signing kids outside of FIFA regulations. Now Real Madrid is being investigated. I'm sure it's happening all the time in other places. You know, parents having to to move to to move countries in order to get their kids into these academies. I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is just so convoluted. I want American academies to produce better players. I really, really do, and Canadian academies. But I I don't yeah, know what know, I don't know what's going to take to get there. Uh, you know, and I'll, and I'll be straight up, Jason. Like this this isn't a big part, not what it used to be, but I still fully believe there is some sort of bias. Uh, uh, depending on your passport. I mean, you know, uh, about a year ago, maybe there was a report where, like, you know, they asked, they asked, like, a scout if you have, like, a, an African, a South American, and, a, and, a, and an American oh, yeah. player. Oh, yeah. Um, of similar skill level, which one do you take? And, like, oh, I'd take the African or the South American. Yeah, yeah. Um, it so, you know, n- that bias is going to be there for a very long time. Yeah. You know, it's Americans trying to play soccer. Soccer is not their sport. Yeah, I got, no, we can't, I, we can't I, find Americans. I got a role, Vince, but uh, just to, to make your point a little bit, I remember not too long ago before Juan Agudelo ultimately ended back up, uh, ended back in, uh, ended up back in MLS. Reading a story about his his prospects, and it was like you know from a British uh, outlet somewhere, some smaller paper. It wasn't it wasn't one of the nationals. It was one of the small, and it said Colombian striker Juan Agudelo. Why did it say Colombian striker Juan Agudelo? Because if you put American striker, people groan. And I and I'm I'm. It's not necessarily. I think there's a bias at the top levels for people who really know the sport, but they but they certainly know that if they bring in an American player. The fans are going to have a bias, and that's going to make it more difficult to sell those fans on the notion that we spent just spent two million dollars or two million pounds or two million two million euros on an American kid. I I I think it's there. I don't know. I don't know that it's an, it's an excuse anymore, Vince, but it's certainly there. Appreciate the comment. Yeah, Jason. Just one just one last quick thing. I mean, and just recently, I mean, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth knowing that. Josie Altidore went for twelve million, and he managed what one goal in the Premier League. Sure, that's not that's not a good look anyway. Sure. You slice it. You, you shouldn't judge every player on the uh, on the exploits of one. Thanks for the call, man. But but it's true. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It hurts American players. It does. And, and again, if I'm running a club in Europe and I have the opportunity to buy a kid from South America out of Argentina, out of Boca Juniors, or or River Plate, or or any of those clubs, and then I have a kid in in the United States who's coming out of either an MLS academy or one of the big American clubs, the Dallas Texans or whatever they are, uh, some of these big, big clubs. I'm probably going to go and look at the kid in South America a little bit harder than I am going to look at the American kid. It's just it's just the nature of the sport right now. All right. 
We've got to wrap this one up. Thank you very much for listening to a Friday episode of the program. Thank you to Manuel Vett for his insight into Ukrainian football and to Will Parchman for his look at the development academy situation in New York City. The New York Soccer Wars continue unabated. Speaking of that, go to backheel.com slash store. We've got some really cool t-shirts you can buy. We've got a soccer morning mug that's up there. Support the show that way. You can go over to 3nilfc.com to buy the t-shirt, the official and only soccer morning t-shirt over there. And uh, what else? iTunes, give us a rating and a review. It helps out a lot. And Monday, Monday is the big move in terms of the live program from Backheel to World Soccer Talk. WorldSoccerTalk.com slash live. Bookmark it now if you are a live listener. Hopefully we'll be back, we'll be back on video. That's YouTube. Get your crap together. Hopefully we'll be back on video. Uh, the podcast stuff doesn't change. You don't have to resubscribe or do anything else if you listen to the podcast after the fact. All right, I'm done. Have a good weekend. Enjoy your FA Cup weekend. But uh, Dortmund plays today, right? See if Dortmund can figure their stuff out. All right, what else? Oh, I'm sure there's a ton of soccer. Go watch it. Have fun. We'll talk to you guys on Monday. Bye.